I believe I can safely say that the hottest new book on medical neurobiology has just been released and its author is my favorite medical neurobiological writer, Peggy Mason. Congratulations. <laughs> Aaron Freeman. Damning with faint praise, my friend. My favorite well, medical neuroscientist. <laughs> well, look, you have the market cornered on medical neuroscience books. <laughs> <laughs> you are the most famous medical neuroscience author, right? almost certainly in America. Uh, I don't even think that that's true, but but be that as it may, I well, okay, just tell me who else has got it writing books on medical neuroscience. There are lots of other there are lots of other books out there that all right that medical students use and that work for them. Um, and, and in fact, when you okay. write a book, when I wrote my book, uh. Both of my both, you you have to make this. You have to come to this place where you're writing it for yourself. If you're writing it for uh, fame, fortune, recognition, money, got it. Uh, it ain't gonna work. Absolutely, one hundred percent not gonna that. work. So, All right, but look now in your in your in the uh, blog post on the brain is so cool. Your very wonderful blog. You said that you should not write a book that does not need to be written. Right now, please, for many of us, it had never occurred to me that a book on medical neuroscience needed to be written. Why does a book on medical neuroscience need to be written? When I originally realized this, which was around. 07 I think it was around 07 um what I realized was that there were a lot of of books out there and they they're exemplified by for instance the the encyclopedic Kendall Schwartz and and a cast of others um which is a great book it's I think it's called Principles in Neuroscience and it you couldn't possibly read it from one end to the other. It's, I don't know, five, six inches thick. Um, and it covers it covers a wide variety of topics that are of interest to neuroscientists. It's not for medical students. So one night, I was out at dinner. The, the University of Chicago Pritzker uh, students put on a what's called a remedy. Remedy Charity, and the Remedy Charity, they auction off, which I, I, I kind of hate this visual, but they auction off <laughs> the faculty members um, who take the students out to a variety of things. Some people take them to the to a ball game. Some people take them to this dinner or that dinner. I always take them to Wildfire. That's just what I do. I offer. Okay. I will take four students to A fine to restaurant here in Chicago. Excellent What's, restaurant. Yeah. Excellent restaurant in Chicago. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, these are usually first, second year medical students. It's oftentimes the first time, oftentimes the first chance that they've ever had to go to Wildfire. They're very excited. We have a good time. But this one dinner, uh, I think the dinner was in 06. And, and I, I don't know. I don't know why this just struck me. But these students were talking to me and they were telling me about all the stuff they had to learn. Not just neurobiology, but they had to learn. For the first two years of medical school, you have to learn a lot of basic science. They had to learn 
cell biology, microbiology, immunology, all this stuff. And I realized that they are, they are up against the wall. These guys are under such pressure to learn so much material that I... In such a big hurry. What's that? In such a big hurry. In a very short amount of time and getting shorter all the time as, as, for a variety of reasons. um, So what I realize is I can't mess around trying to give these students interesting things in neurobiology. Who cares? I need them to know really critical stuff in neurobiology. And I need them to know that now and forever. In 30 years, I want them to know the corticospinal tract. Okay? I don't care if they know about zebran stripes in the cerebellum in 30 years. I don't even care if they know that next year. But in 30 years, they have to know the corticospinal tract just to be an informed citizen, much less a physician, regardless of specialty. And... And I, it just was such an epiphany. It's just that we cannot be self-indulgent. We as teachers cannot be self-indulgent about what we teach. And um. and so when I had once with this lens of, oh, my goodness, these students need to get a, a set of material that is appropriate for their path in life. I put everything against yep. that. That litmus test and what fell by the wayside a lot of stuff so a lot of very interesting neurobiology one of the first things to fall by the wayside was central auditory pathways okay why because after the ear the information about sound goes into the brainstem and immediately it crosses and because it is represented on both sides of the brain there are no situations between the that initial place where the that initial nucleus where the information comes into and the cortex, there are no auditory disorders because you never get huh. a perfect lesion on both sides of the brain. Um, you never huh. get it, and there are no diseases that do it. So, so you you spend a lot of time on the on the ear, on the cochlea, on the middle ear, on the external ear, even much more so than on the brainstem because brainstem or thalamus representation of sound doesn't matter. It doesn't. They're never going to see somebody who says, oh, doc, you know, when last last uh, last night my, my kid was calling me and I thought she was calling me from the left, but in fact she was calling me from the right. What's wrong? So sound localization is not something that's going to drive somebody to see the doctor. That's not going to happen. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. out it goes, and then. So uh, what's really interesting about this to me, as a obviously a non-scientist, is that we all get this fourteen hundred and forty minutes per day, the same fourteen hundred and forty minutes per day that the cavemen had, but we are required, as we are all as citizens required, as are your medical students, to ingest and manage gigantically, overwhelmingly, exponentially more information in that same 1,440 minutes, more information than even existed 
a generation ago. And so in, in, in order to deal with that, we as citizens and as humans have to become much more ruthless and selective about what we don't pay attention to. I, and that's what I think I hear you say. Well, I mean, I think you you're, to, I think you're, you're exactly right. And, and here's the thing. They can do the selection, which is what was always ha- what always happens. If you if the teachers they, don't they as in the, they, they the, as in the medical students yeah if the teachers don't select the, the students will select but who's right. more equipped to select correctly or or in with from an informed point of view I am for neurobiology I'm more informed so I'm going to do it I'm going to do the hard work of selecting what it is that I think they need to know. That a medical student. That what's going to be useful to them. And then I'm going to hammer it home over and over again. I'm going to try and make it entertaining. But I'm going to take out all that stuff that... Uh, Even it's cool. They think you take out a bunch of really cool, interesting, fascinating stuff. Sound localization is one of the coolest stories in... Which we're going, to do, we're going to do a vlog about. We're going to do a podcast about that because that's we have that little thing. It's really wonderful. Sound localization is really amazing. Sound localization cool. is really amazing. There's a U Chicago connection to it, um, and it, you know it's a great subject. But it was one of the first things to be cut. Yeah. So okay. So so you 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 did the first uh, edition of medical neuroscience, which I personally have and really love and treasure, uh, and it's also very useful. Medical in, uh, medical neurobiology. Com- no medical neurobiology. I'm sorry. Medical neurobiology, which is also very useful uh, to, to, to when it takes your class, your MOOC, yeah. uh, understanding the brain and neurobiology of everyday life. But okay. So why? What did you? What's? Why is this book different than the first one? Why is the edition two? Why did you need edition two? Um, so the the impetus for edition two was not quite the same as the impetus for edition one. <laughs> one of the major okay. impetus. What is the plural of impetus, please? Who knows? Impetai. One of the one of the major drivers of me doing okay. the second edition was the fact that I had a complete woo, um, brain woo, uh, and is that that I assume that's a technical term. Absolutely, a hundred percent. Yeah. So for about six pages in the first edition, I called the cervical crane, the cervical spinal cord. The cranial spinal cord. There is no such word as a cranial spinal cord. <laughs> cranial spinal it's cord. The cervical okay. spinal cord. Not only okay. did I do that, but it made it through all the ver- various copy editing and proof stages. Yeah. yeah. You're, this it drove made it me crazy. Peer review. This drove it me made crazy. It pe- so yeah. if only to correct that, yeah. it was worth it. And then I also have to say that the the pulling directions of the eye muscles there are six extra ocular eye muscles now this is extremely important because okay. it's a complicated control system and it's one of the things that goes off in people frequently so you you, you kind of have to have a passing uh, acquaintance with the extraocular muscles and their pulling directions 
What did they? In particular, if you're going to be a clinician, because you were saying that people will often come in with problems with those extraocular muscles. Yes, and even if you're not going to be a neurologist, I think it's valuable to go through the exercise of understanding it, so that you could you could take yourself through it if you need it. If you were stuck on a desert island, you're the only physician. Somebody's got a wonky eye. You got to figure out what's going on there. Okay? okay, so it's an important piece of clinical. Uh, it's a port, important piece of clinical knowledge. Moreover, okay. I had it wrong. There were pieces <laughs> in the first edition that were wrong. Now I cannot keep this information in my head for too too long. So luckily I have um, a very kind uh, and willing uh, uh, colleague who looked at innumerable drafts of my sections on the extraocular muscles. And to get it right meant that I had to expand it. I had to to hold my own hand, proverbially hold my own hand as I step my way through it, step by step, so I could understand it. And if I could understand it, I could explain it. But right. that was a that was a very so there's a very big improvement there where I put in um, what passed his <laughs> judgment as correct. So, okay, so I'm pretty you know, good. You, you know, listening to you talk about this uh, reminds me uh, of, of a very, very, very common phenomenon in writing overall, which is our darlings, right? So there are certain things about neurobiology that I assume are darlings, things that you think are just really, really cool. Okay, maybe they're not 100% relevant to to medical students, but they're just cool things to know and they're cool things, they're cool phenomena. And in writing, in in a lot of writing, you have to be first willing to kill your darlings, to just cut them, even though they're cool, even though they're wonderful and interesting and have great words associated with them, if they are not specifically on point, if they're not just crucial to the, what you're trying to do here, in your case, inform medical students, dead. And it's really, it's painful to do. I, it's I, horrible to do. I could not agree more. I could not agree more. And the way I think about it is very Oscar Wilde. You always kill the one you love. Now, when I write a paper, yeah. I usually start with a sentence or two that I am freaking in love with. I, I just think, you know... The sun shone shone up my whatever when I wrote those two sentences. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, of course, and, absolutely. And when I delete those sentences, I'm ready to send the paper in. <laughs> well, you know, and that's one of the really interesting things about I don't know, writing. I, can, I can't explain that. Can you explain that? Well, no. Well, well. I, let me ask you. See if this is what you're talking about. Because what I find is that once I delete my darlings, I never miss them. When they're gone, they're gone. I just don't even think about it. I just I like, I, for example, I have many times I've cut something and said, "Okay, well, I've cut, this is really great. I'll cut it, but I'll go back and I'll put it back in if it doesn't, you know, if it looks like there's room in the, um, you know, if, if, if somehow it's appropriate." But when I cut them, the stuff I cut almost never comes back. Oh no, this is not you. It, no, it never comes back. 
It never oh, it comes does. Back. Okay, yeah. For me, yeah, for me, it doesn't. I mean, no, no, it, maybe... I'm agreeing with you. It never comes back. Yeah. And even though it seemed so wonderful and I cared so much and it was so painful to cut it, it just doesn't. I'm I'm always happy for the brevity. <laughs> the joys of brevity are better. The joys of editing are more exquisite than the joys of well-worded fluff. Brevity is so important. And even more so now. Even but okay, now here's the thing though. The, the it's it's slight I think it's slightly easier for someone like me, uh like a, a fiction writer, let's say, for the sake of argument than for someone like you to tell what's not moving the story forward, right? So when I'm, if I'm trying to tell a story, and I, I assume it's slightly different than you because you're writing a textbook, but if I'm trying to tell a story, it's easy to say that uh, uh, a, 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 the beautiful description of the sunrise that day is not necessarily going to move my story forward. Even though I did a wonderful job and even though it's a wonderful description, I can tell it's not, not going to move my story forward and I can it's easier easy to say that should get cut. But with you, you're talking about not like as you talk about the uh, you talk about bits of knowledge about the actual brain. You have to decide what knowledge about the brain does a medical student need to know and I'm curious about the criteria again let's say for me the criteria you could say if it doesn't move your story forward if it doesn't put your character in more trouble or get your character out of trouble or get your character some help cut it but how do you what criteria do you apply to neurobiology in deciding whether or not a medical student needs to know well let me give you a few examples okay so most textbooks except for mine, will teach locomotion by... I'm sorry. No, they will talk about two animals, two animals, two non-human animals. One is the leech. How does the leech swim, which we know a lot about? And the other one is how does the cat walk? Now, leech swimming is not terrestrial, and cat walking is quadrupedal. We are bipeds. Our walking bears some some resemblance to both, but not enough to warrant either of their inclusion, in my opinion. Okay, so when I, so one of the things that I did when I wrote the, the first edition was I went deep down into the rabbit hole of walking, all right? And now to get to what, what, what distinguishes walking, say, from cats walking, is that we have to have gait, which we share with the cat, but we also have to have balance. Gait and balance have to be hand in hand as we locomote. So the the challenge of staying upright to a quadruped and to a biped cannot be compared. So once you realize that you have to talk about balance it, during walking, you realize you in fact have to talk about balance during standing. So then I great, you know, I I put in this this whole section about how do you stay upright? How do you stand? And in fact, standing is a is a movement. We think of it as a as a not not moving, but it's actually a right. movement. There's something called postural sway which you can best think about as an inverted pendulum. Think about a pendulum that instead of hanging from the ceiling right. is is it has its fulcrum at the at the floor. 
and you in are... fact I would think of standing as a series of movements as a as a, 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 a set of movements right because you all you're con- don't you have to constantly adjust the balance in order to stay standing upright absolutely it's it is a very highly regulated movement postures postural control postural maintaining right. a posture is a very highly regulated movement that involves most parts of the brain some 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 cortex and a lot of cerebellum right. along with the spinal cord of course it's a dance i mean standing is its own little dance to to it, mo- to, to totally and there are yeah. plenty of diseases parkinson's being one of the obvious ones where the um that postural stability is is very challenged Right, right, right. So the ability so, to do that standing dance. So, so then I, so then I, I went from including walking, to including uh, balance and and postural control. And in the second edition, I improved it a little bit. I, I there were some mistakes in the, or there were some not mistakes, but there were places where I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have phrased it the way I phrased it. If I were to do it today, so I, I had the opportunity to rewrite the the postural control part. Right. And one of the th- interesting things about the postural control is that you're it, you have to have the um the center of force essentially over your uh over the platform upon which you're standing. So if you're just standing upright, okay, your center of mass is over your uh is is over your feet. And so no problem. Yeah. But let's say you lean forward. Now your center for your center of mass is in front of your feet. What keeps you upright? Well, muscle force keeps you upright. This is okay. essentially what all Pilates exercises does uh, do. Um, so then you think about well, what happens when people uh, gain weight? Because this is going to offset the tradition, the evolved center of mass. The, okay. We evolved probably not as overweight. We probably evolved <clears throat> um, relatively thin because we were working hard for our lives. Uh, and physically, food was a, finding enough food was a problem. Finding enough for food, a lot, lot of humans. Finding food and water was a daily expenditure of energy to get the yes. energy. So we were pretty close to zero balance. Um, and so, um, and so, so what happens now with a person who is obese? Well, the center of mass goes out and that's going to include, that's going to require more, uh, muscle force to then bring that, that, this, the center of gravity back over your feet. Um, and then I, then I went down this rabbit hole of what happens to a pregnant woman. Just going to okay. ask about that. That's right. So, That's right. so then I, I talked to my friend. My friend who, who knows about extraocular muscles, Callum Ross, is the same person who knows about this other stuff. And, and he points me to this incredible paper uh, which looks at um, pregnant primates and how they adjust their posture, okay, including pregnant women. And what's really shocking is there is a postural, there is a posture that that pregnant women adopt that 
puts their new center of mass over their feet. So they, so I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but but women that are pregnant will they they sort of push their shoulders back. So now the, the huh. So instead of having that. the center of mass out in front of their feet, now it's because they they have changed their the angle of their spine, it's now back on top of the feet. So, okay, so I, I look at this. I'm fascinated by it. I Time is running short on the, new, on the second edition. I have a due date. I go upstairs. I'm talking to Giselle. I say, you know, this is so cool, but it's really, it's really ancillary. I shouldn't include it, right? She says, absolutely not. Do not include this. I go downstairs. I'm a good girl. I don't include it. An hour passes. I still don't include it. Two hours pass. Oh, uh, e- I gotta put it in. <laughs> <laughs> And so, without telling Giselle, I, I, I don't know, I spent about five hours putting it in, agonizing, making a, agonizing making a figure this. that illustrates it, because it's too freaking cool. And I could tell, I could justify it as, this is, a, this is applicable. This is about people. This is important for, okay, you know. It's important, it's important for clinicians. Important, weight gain is important to people. Pregnancy is important to people. These are very common phenomena. Right. Yeah, you know, there's fine justifications. Excellent, excellent. But, but, <laughs> but the decision to go down the rabbit hole and then the decision to keep the rabbit hole in or out of the story, these are very difficult. You're, you're saying you, that... For me, whether or not it advances it moves the story, the story is a relatively forward. well, is yeah, the, is a relatively the, easy. The pregnant thing is it? It's a judgment call. I probably was somewhat self-indulgent in including it, but mm-hmm. I, that's the that's the side of the of the gray line that I came down on. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, look. I mean, it's your book. But now, okay. But now, it was this, did this topic, this particular business about uh, uh, standing upright and the distribution of weight, did that come up as a topic of discussion with your editors? Because you do, I mean, you obviously have professional editors. Did this come up? Did someone say, "By the way, I don't know about this whole standing thing and no, pregnant no. woman belly thing"? My editor is very hands off, so uh, no. so no. This this came from me. I, I mean, another one that another one that was, vi- I, I would say up there with correcting uh, cranial spinal cord, indiscernible well, <laughs> ah, right. spinal cord. <laughs> that famous cranial spinal cord. That's a yes. great thing to have. I <laughs> so um, up there with that was the desire to correct an absence, which was that I didn't mention cerebral palsy. Uh-huh. Now, this is this is essentially me, the writer as a as a follower. There are certain topics that that neuroscientists have all decided are interesting and important to convey to new neuroscientists, and amongst those topics are not some very very important ones, ones that I spend a lot of time on, and one is intellectual disability, which I I knew 
I was cognizant of this, and it's in the first edition, it's in the second edition, but most textbooks don't have a section on intellectual disability, even though it affects an amazing number of people. Um, and it's, it's brain, it's, it is a developmental problem with the brain. Um, right. That's not okay. It's got to be in there. Well, in, along the same lines, <clears throat> I felt that it was very important to uh, include cerebral palsy. And, uh, and so I managed to get cerebral palsy into the second edition. I'm very happy about that. So do you hope that your average um, reader would be able to pick up Medical Neurobiology Edition 2 and get something useful out of it, someone who's not taking your course, someone who's not interested? Is it your dream fantasy that this might be not a bestseller, but a moderate seller, like a, a popular book? Well, you know, I don't have any illusions that it's going to be a, a a big seller. It's it's too much money for a casual person to to pick it up. Um, it's only eighty bucks. Yeah, so it's the cheapest out there. Uh, <laughs> it's the least inexpensive out there, but nonetheless, eighty bucks is is not a trivial amount right. of money. No. And um. And it's. So the students regularly tell me it's the first textbook that they've read cover to cover. Um, it is a very fun fun read. Yeah. Certainly as medical neurobiology books go, it's the funniest. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think that as many non-medical students are even in the game or even think about reading it cover to cover. But right. So what do I hope? I, I do hope that neurobiology gets into the popular... Um, knowledge set much more than it is today how that happens whether it happens through my book through our blog um through our podcast through your blog or my blog or or a, you know a, a lot of different avenues it doesn't matter to me so let me say what, what I, I i obviously i completely agree with you and how i think that would look is that i would someday like to have uh, discussions just as now we we say oh he's just depressed he's off his meds I'd like to have uh, neurobiology the the terms of neurobiology become as ubiquitous as are the terms of psychology nowadays nowadays we talk about easily talk about paranoia um, uh, uh, very various uh, uh, psychiatric medicines uh, uh, depression we talk about them and we and they are ways of and this is interesting. I mean, there are ways of kind of pathologizing behavior, but they 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 ameliorate moral judgment. If somebody is just off their meds, then they're not they're not just a bad person. So that I think that uh, that neurobiology and the terms of neurobiology, when people recognize that there are neurobiological reasons for certain behaviors to explain certain deficiencies, that. That's what I would, I would hope that those terms would be out there in the culture and be in water cooler conversational use. Yeah, personally, it, I, I there, there's an old book called "A Mathematician Reads a Newspaper." Ah, that's <laughs> or re, cool. Reads the newspaper. It, it's a great, actually. I I really like the opening, at least of it. Um, but I would want, I would want. 
people to think about neurobiology in the same way that I do as I read the newspaper. So when right, I absolutely. Look, when I look at this whole um, fiasco with botched executions yes. and trying to execute people with drugs that are not made to execute people, yeah, um, I, there's a huge neurobiology there that should be that should be told, and it's for some reason you know it, it's it's really lost in the in the weeds. Um, the mass incarceration with social isolation, the use of social isolation in, in U.S. Prison, prisons is a neurobiological disaster that, that's happening. Um, thermoregulatory issues uh, that are coming up because of the warming of the, of the climate uh, are, are huge, um, and how those intersect with with exercise, how those intersect with um, unair-conditioned prisons, and so on. These are all topics where neurobiology has something that it could contribute to the public conversation. You know, you should do a podcast about these things. A neurobiologist looks at the news. What an amazing idea. I, I, I really think you should think about doing this. Maybe you should, we could find like a, a comedian who you could work with to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Just, just per chance. Just per chance. <laughs> but on that note, I'm actually going to run out of here because uh, I have to go and take care of my, my old body. But this is really so. The, the, but the, but let us say that the neuro uh, medical neurobiology at second edition is it out now? It is out. It is out. It is out, and you can go to Amazon.com. You could go to Amazon.com. You could go to Barnes and Noble. You could go to Barnes OUP, Noble. Oxford University Press. All of the above. Just in time for that Shavuot shopping that you have not, <laughs> you haven't done, you gotten your gifts for Shavuot. If you happen to be a Jewish fan of neurobiology, this is the perfect gift for Shavuot for the neurobiology Jewish fan in your life. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you, Mason. We will talk soon, and we'll do another cast. Mwah. See you soon. Bye. Bye bye.